0: boom mm-hmm. bom And welcome to the Now It's Dark movie podcast. This is Tim, and we have uh, another episode for you today. We've been a little bit more regular with this recently. If you haven't yet, uh, be sure to check out our two-part End of the Movies podcast. We had on special guest John W. Gunnison, a movie industry expert, to talk about where the movies are kind of headed and uh, what has changed since covid but uh, I'm actually recording this on December nineteenth, twenty twenty-two. Or no, look at the time; it's actually December twentieth, twenty twenty-two. So Christmas is just around the corner, and around this time of year, I like to check out Christmas movies. And a particular subgenre of Christmas movie that I really love is is what you might call the alt Christmas movie. These are movies that are set during Christmas but seem to be kind of at odds with what are typically considered. Christmas films. Uh, the classic example, of course, is Die Hard. But you can also talk about movies like Gremlins and Edward Scissorhands. A recent favorite of mine, Phantom Thread, which has some key scenes set at Christmas. But I think my favorite example of this subgenre is Eyes Wide Shut, the 1999 erotic mystery psychodrama directed by Stanley Kubrick. And if you have not seen the film, well, it might be a good time to stop and bookmark this discussion for later because there'll be a lot of spoilers ahead. But if you're someone who likes to hear what a movie is all about before you check it out, then please keep listening. Uh, the best way to describe this film, I found a great summary that was written by the BFI. And I want to read it all the way through because I think it gives a really good sense of what this movie is actually about. It's really good synopses. It says, quote, Dr. Bill Hartford, uh, Tom, played by Tom Cruise, embarks on a dreamlike nocturnal odyssey after his wife Alice, played by Nicole Kidman, confesses while intoxicated to having had intense fantasies about another man. Bill's wanderings offer him an enticing glimpse of a murky sexual underworld and ultimately lead him to a ritualistic masked orgy in an opulent mansion. But despite encountering a wealth of potential partners, Bill finds his opportunities to taste forbidden fruit thwarted at every turn, end quote. I thought that was just a really nice encapsulation of the narrative of the film. Um, The film is loosely based on Viennese writer Arthur Schnitzler's 1926 novella called Traum Novelle, or Dream Story, and like many of Kubrick's films, Eyes Wide Shut was initially met with pretty mixed reviews and also kind of became the source of a great deal of a speculation as to whether Kubrick actually finished the film, given that he died during the post-production of the film. But I think in the 23 years or so since it's been released, its reputation has only grown And I think it's become even more topical in the wake of things like the Jeffrey Epstein case, which kind of mirrors some of the events in the film. Uh, Going back again to the BFI, uh, quote, in its ominous references to decadent elites pulling society's strings, the film also anticipates an obsession with secret societies and conspiracy theories that has become a defining trait of 21st century popular culture, end quote. So there's a lot to talk about with this film, and today we're going to be joined by a friend of mine, a longtime Kubrick fan, Kubrick super fan, musician, um, and all all around Renaissance man, we might say, Mike Ventola. Uh, Mike, welcome to Now with Stark. Uh, could you maybe give us a little introduction about you?
1: Pleasure to be here, Tim. Uh, nice to be collaborating with you again. You know, Tim, we know each other because we played music together. We've made films together. Uh, we spent a long time talking about Kubrick together yeah and I currently uh, uh, operate and do sales at a warehouse uh, I'm, I'm a musician I, I play often in uh, bars i'm I'm working on a screenplay I've uh, made a short film with you or um, and uh, whereabouts yeah. are you
0: based right now Mike
1: oh I'm in uh, Toronto um, Toronto
0: yeah Right. So I'm, I'm actually calling you, it's 10.53 uh, p.m. Korea time right now on December 20th. What time is it there? 8.53
1: a.m. So we've got a okay. bit of a time difference.
0: Yeah, yeah, indeed. Well, I uh, appreciate you waking up early to join us here today. And I wanted to ask you, uh, when did you first see Eyes Wide Shut? And um, how many times have you seen it, roughly?
1: Well, the first time i saw it is when i was 17. um i think i've told you about that before do you want me to go in the full details of that or
0: yeah refresh my memory about
1: that sure well uh i was 17 i was hanging out with a musician buddy of mine who was a little bit older and he took me over to one of his friends house and um they actually had a a mushrooms so we took mushrooms and then watched eyes wide shut and uh you know halfway through the film i was uh feeling the effects and quite terrified and uh by the end of the movie i was completely blown away of like i've never seen a movie that has every line and every scene such duplicity of like obvious latent meaning but at the same time you know my 17 year old mind was like i can understand a lot of what's going on but it's there's so much mystery here of what he's trying to do like it was just such a profound experience you know and that's really the first introduction i had to kubrick that I was very much like woken up, you know, before I've seen the shining before and I'd watched, you know, maybe full metal jacket. Actually, I think I watched full metal jacket after that. Yeah. And then since then, I've gone to, uh, I saw it. At, they did a Kubrick retrospective at TIFF. So I went and saw all of his films there and there was interviews with Alan Cummings as well as, uh, uh, Christiane Kubrick. Is that how you pronounce your name? Christian?
0: Yes. Yes.
1: Yes. And, uh, Jan Harlan or Jan Harlan, if that's how you pronounce it. Um, And I remember some key moments from those interviews that we can maybe talk about later. And every year I watch it uh, around Christmas time Um, and different, I watch for different things. You know, like sometimes I look for the color, sometimes I'm listening to the sound. This last time through, I was really focused on just the dialogue um, and the script as well as marking, you know, the way the colors move throughout it. And every time I watch it, I kind of discover something new, you know, like all of the, The themes and the dialogue and the pictures are so intertwined. It just opens up like a whole world of interest, you know?
0: Yeah, I definitely felt the same way watching it. I I know I I was a little surprised to learn after I'd seen the film. And I think I saw it maybe a little bit later than you. uh, And I'm pretty sure I, I saw it for the first time on TV or VHS. And I remember loving it the first time I saw it, I, I was really compelled by its its mystery. And I was really kind of surprised to find out later that it got kind of a mixed reception, that a lot of people didn't like, for example, its pacing or the the dialogue or the performances or things like that, because I was really fascinated by the the whole package. Um, and I think like you, I was really just intrigued by the mystery of it all. And, you know, one thing about Kubrick His films really do reward multiple viewings. I mean, you really can't begin to understand them on the first viewing. So I'm really happy you're here to join us today to talk about this film. And it is oddly kind of part of, uh, you talked about, you mentioned it was part of your kind of Christmas, yearly Christmas ritual. It has kind of become part of mine too. Um, And that's also something I hope we can get into is... Uh, how or or if this movie is indeed a Christmas movie in in some way. For today's conversation, we're actually going to start by talking about the background of the film, the novel, some interesting facts about the making of the film, and also kind of the enduring mystery over whether the version that's released in theaters, the version we can see today, is actually Kubrick's final cut. Uh, But there'll be a lot of interesting information about the making of the film, too. Then we're going to be analyzing the film and kind of focusing on the question of, like I mentioned, if it's a Christmas movie, but also discussing things like uh, Kubrick's treatment of domesticity, um, of class, uh, of dreams themselves. And I think we're going to be offering uh, some pretty fresh interpretations of this film. Uh, I've done my best to kind of take a look at the existing literature on this film, and I think we'll probably bring some new perspectives Uh, Just to note that if you do enjoy our discussion today, you may also be interested in checking out more of our episodes, uh, including our 237-minute-long podcast on The Shining. It's done in two parts. You can find that wherever podcasts are found. Also note that for access to our full back catalog, and for full versions of this episode and all other episodes going forward, check out our Patreon at Patreon Dark. Uh, we'll also be offering some extra goodies for uh, people as well. I, I think I'm going to start putting the scripts that I make for these episodes on there as well as a, as a bonus feature. So be sure to check that out. Um, but for now, sit back, relax, and enjoy our special Christmas discussion of Eyes Wide Shut. And we're going to be starting off today by talking about the making of the film. Um, Based on what I've read, it's kind of unclear when Kubrick first read Dream Story by Arthur Schnitzler. It may have actually been in his father's library. His father was a big reader. It may have also been introduced to him by someone else. We do know that he eventually acquired the rights to it in the early 70s. And he also joked about having bought every existing English translation of the book up until that point, just to prevent other people from adapting it, which is a very Kubrick thing to do. Um, Some interesting details about Schnitzler himself, he was kind of a womanizer when he was younger, but eventually separated from his wife Olga after she cheated on him, which kind of mirrors some of the events in the book. Uh, Sigmund Freud actually regarded him as his personal doppelganger, a fact that no doubt interested Kubrick, who was greatly influenced by Freud. Uh, his work was regarded, and I'm talking about Schnitzlers now, his work was regarded as, quote, Jewish filth, end quote, by the Nazis, and only escaped destruction when his wife managed to have it taken to Cambridge, um... Schnitzler was also a fan of early cinema and even wrote a screenplay based on dream story that was never filmed i believe he uh, prepared it for the director pabst and uh, it was never actually filmed and researchers actually discovered recently that uh, Schnitzler originally intended for the hero friedelin to actually cheat on his wife albertine during the orgy scene and for her to chase him away after he confesses having done so so we're even still kind of learning some interesting details about this the the novel or the novella, even uh after it so much time has passed since it's been written. So I wanted to ask you, Mike, uh I've read the novella. It's been quite a while since I have. Uh, but I wanted to ask you uh if you've read it and and what you made of it.
1: Uh yes, I read it um I think near the end of university, around the time that I had uh gone to the Kubrick Tiff retrospective. Um I enjoyed it tremendously. And I read it, you know, as a study into eyes wide shut. And I can remember reading it and thinking like, Oh, this would make an amazing screenplay, like forgetting that I had, that was the reason I was reading it. <laughs> um, what I enjoyed the about it the most was just the, the dreamy atmosphere of it. And how Kubrick had adapted this, you know, set in the 20s, I believe. Uh, and yeah, how he had adapted into modern society so seamlessly and so interestingly and you know characters he like the character of Ziegler he added in just as a kind of to tie together i guess an, an ominous uh, authority um and just its representation of human sexuality in the same way that the movie when you when you watch it it suggests so much more than it shows even though it shows you a lot uh i felt the same thing about the story of and I, I think uh, Schnitzler, like he studied Freud, and I, I'm pretty sure that this novel was kind of his exercise into bringing his ideas into the for, into the you know public sphere in, into art, uh, and it was you know to me like it's a massive successful achievement.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because I I read uh, Freud's essay on the uncanny um, for our shining episodes. And uh, it never really occurred to me until recently that Freud describes a part in that, I think, about a guy wandering through kind of a strange, like dreamlike city and encountering prostitutes and and other characters. And I'm like, wow, this is very much kind of like what Eyes Wide Shut became in some ways. And I know Kubrick was really influenced by the idea of the uncanny as well. Um, What do you think Kubrick saw? in the book, in the novella that made him want to adapt it?
1: Well, uh, in the essay you're referring on the uncanny, uh, it was Freud himself who I'm pretty sure in that essay was walking through the streets of, it was either Vienna or Venice. I think it was Vienna because that's where he was living. And yeah, he kept returning. He he found himself in like a red light district and then would cut down an alleyway to get away from it because he didn't want to be seen there. And he kept returning there, no matter what alleyway he cut to is a key point of The Uncanny, uh, the return. Everything that happens in the second half of the movie is Bill returning to the places that he was in the first half of the movie that led him to the house, right? The house being where the orgy takes place. Um, But there's lots of... The return in The Uncanny is kind of another aspect of the doubling that goes on with doppelgangers and things like that, which also happens in the movie. But there's also, in Kubrick's film, a return to his previous works that help highlight the themes. Like for example, in the background when Alice is dancing with Sandor, uh, the lights kind of make little antenna on her head, which call back to Lolita when she was dressed as like the fairy nymph in the play that she was playing, Mm
0: -hmm. which kind
1: of gives Alice this subliminally, but objectively or ostensibly that she's a vulnerable child in a lot of ways. And I, I, we can talk more about that. I don't want to mess the segue of what we're talking about, but yeah, the the return aspect is what I'd like to focus on for a moment.
0: Yeah. I think that's, that's definitely true because I think this was a movie in which Kubrick was kind of also returning and looking back on his life in some ways. Um, you know, his wife, Christiane, uh, the, apparently he had given her the novella to read and she wasn't really a fan of it. And she was kind of dismayed by the idea of the project. I think he gave it to her when they were still pretty early on in their relationship. And she's like, listen, I don't want to have to get into the, these ideas of infidelity and, you know, fantasizing about other people and stuff like that. And she really kind of discouraged him from making the film. But another really interesting thing that I found is that um, apparently, according to Christian, the film reminded him, or the book reminded him of his second wife, Ruth Sabotka. Uh, so Kubrick was married to uh, this woman named Ruth Sabatka. I think in his early 20s or mid-20s. And um, Kubrick, she claimed, um, and this is Christian uh, talking, uh, quote, saw extraordinary parallels between his relationship with Ruth, and Trumnaval's Heroes Dealing With Women. Um, and, end quote. and it may have actually been Sabotka that introduced Kubrick to the book. Um, it's also interesting in that regard, there's a reference to the Nutcracker early on in the movie. Um, their daughter, mm-hmm. uh, Bill and Alice is in the film, their daughter wants to stay up late and watch the Nutcracker. And it's interesting because Ruth Sabotka was actually a ballet dancer who performed in the Nutcracker so there are these kind of interesting parallels with uh, Kubrick's own life. Uh, Tom Cruise has said that uh, this was a, you know, Kubrick's most personal story, and I think a couple of other people have made similar claims. And it's also interesting too. I mean, Bill and Alice's New York City apartment is apparently a recreation of the apartment that Kubrick and Christian lived in, right down to the furniture. Uh, It's also worth noting, too, that like Bill Harford, uh, Kubrick's father was a doctor. And Kubrick actually told Michael Herr that, quote, he'd like to make a movie about doctors because everybody hates doctors, end quote. (laughs) So like there are these interesting parallels. We'll get into a few more as we go on. Um, But one thing I want to introduce right now is is kind of Kubrick's original conception for the film, because... Like we kind of alluded to before, Kubrick sat on this project for a very long time before actually making it. And he actually originally conceived of adapting Dream Story as kind of a sex comedy with a bit of a serious side to it. So I'm kind of wondering, like, what you think of this. I'll I'll just lay out a few more details about how we actually got to that point. Um... He did discuss this idea with a number of different people, potential collaborators, he was, who he was potentially looking to adapt the, the novella with. Um, I, he even worked on some ideas, apparently, with Terry Southern in 1983. And uh, I think he also discussed the idea with, um, was it John Le Carré, uh, the kind of uh, spy novelist, um, eventually in 1994, he hired, uh, Frederick Raphael to work on, uh, adapting the novel. Uh, and there's actually a, a book about this process. I believe it's called Eyes Wide Open that, uh, Raphael actually wrote. It's a, it's a pretty snarky book. I, I read it at one point and I know you were talking about it a little bit earlier. Um, what did you think about that book? I, I, I kind of, it, it left kind of a bad taste in my mouth. Um, when I read it, it, it was a little kind of illuminating because it did offer glimpses of Kubrick that were maybe a little bit less polished than the glimpses that we see in, in you know, maybe like Michael hers work or the documentary Life in Pictures that uh, was approved by the Kubrick family. But it did just kind of feel like it was written with a kind of bad conscience, like Raphael was very resentful of of Kubrick. And was kind of getting back at him but what did you think of of raphael's book
1: well i think a lot of the problem that when people complain about working with stanley um is that they feel like because he was always kind of one step ahead of everyone and what he was thinking of that they got led into a situation that they didn't feel was completely open uh or he was completely transparent about from the beginning uh and it kind of reminds me of that line in the movie when Sandor's talking to Alice, and he says, like, you know, when you're married, deception becomes a necessity. And it almost feels the same sometimes when you're, you know, trying to get something done, like making a movie where you're working with so many people uh, that you just want to get, he just wanted to get his movie made. So unfortunately, sometimes he didn't take people's feelings into consideration because it seems like his primary concern was making the movie that he felt needed to be made. Uh, I had I have the book in front of me actually, and I was uh, skimming through reading it again last night, and a lot of uh, Frederick Raphael's kind of when he talks about Kubrick, he paints him kind of sinister or kind of like um, like I said, like one step ahead. For example, when the first phone conversation, Raphael is saying, uh, you know, I right am pretty much signed up to do another project right now, but I'll drop it for you and only you, Stanley the only person I would do this for, but I need a guarantee that if I drop this project, you will, I I will be doing this project with you. And he didn't even know what the project was going to be. He had heard it was going to be sci-fi. And Stanley Mm -hmm. says, well, I'm not even sure you want to do the project yet. And (laughs) Raphael says, well, if let's say I do want to do the project, can you guarantee me that I will be able to do it? And Stanley said, sure. You know, and but then that opens up the door for now. Stanley can set the conditions for how they're going to move forward working together. Uh, and and a lot of the stuff that he complains about is like, oh, he wanted early manuscripts quickly. I wanted to finish it, and he wanted me to show him the first ten pages. But Stanley was always very encouraging and complimentary towards him. Uh, and then the only part that was kind of embarrassing about Stanley was. Uh, he invited, he was trying to be a little bit more chummy cause it had been business with him. You know, uh, I remember there's a part where Raphael complains like, oh, his wife served us these cold chicken sandwiches. Like he's just always <laughs> whining throughout the whole thing. And it's, you know, you're, you're in Stanley Cooper's home. Like, you, you know, you should be bowing towards him. <laughs> uh, but, uh, after they had finished the screenplay and they were going to go into production, Cooper had invited him, Raphael on set. And it said, uh, well, do you want to come during one of the scenes where we're you know filming Nicole Kidman naked and Frederick was like I felt so offended by this like how could he do this and I think Kubrick was just joking with him you know because the movie is Mm. explicitly about sex and there's nudity throughout it Uh, and then Kubrick recognized like uh uh-oh in trying to be like a little bit chummy and vulnerable with this guy now I've maybe opened myself up for attack and sure enough what does Raphael do spin it that oh, Kubrick was saying this pervy locker room kind of guy thing when ostensibly it was just probably kind of a dark joke that he was saying, you know, I mean, I don't, I don't think Kubrick would invite strangers on the set when Nicole said nothing but great things about how Stanley was so kind and caring and protective towards her, you know, in the whole process. But there is a lot to be said for in the making of the way that he treated his staff. I remember uh, when I was listening to the Alan Cummings interview uh, at TIFF And I I, just remembering it uh, because this part stuck out to me was he was like, you know, I think Kubrick might have done a bad, bad thing when he brought Tom and Nicole onto the project because he brought them on, I think, largely because their real life paralleled a lot of the stuff that goes on in the movie. And I think he did this with a lot of characters. I think he even pulled in Frederick Raphael because it seems to me that Frederick Raphael is an old money, very wealthy, snobby guy. And he's like, well, who better to write the screenplay than someone like that? Um, and then at the yeah, end but of it, the
0: kind of represent re- representing like, uh, kind of stodgy elite, um, kind of old European almost, uh, characters.
1: Exactly. If you ever watch him in interviews, he's just very pompous and, you know, he's always dismissing Kubrick, which is such a like rude thing to do, you know, like Stan is yeah. a shy artist who doesn't, it uh, doesn't goes on record defending himself or his movies or anything. And then you kick dirt at him while he's deceased after having worked with him and one of the defining moments of your career. Like, and he's always just talking about his other films, his other films. Sure. He's won awards for them, but they're not on the radar. Like eyes wide shut are in term, at least in my perspective.
0: Um, yeah. And the, the points that you're mentioning about, you know, Tom Cruise, Nicole Kidman and, and Alan Cumming, we'll get to that in just a moment. I, I wanted to address a couple of things that you mentioned there. Uh, first of all, in terms of Kubrick's sort of dark sense of humor, I mean, I can remember reading this anecdote. I forget who it was, but they mentioned to Kubrick, listen, I'm on my way to meet Orson Wells. And Kubrick said, just a minute. And he ran upstairs to his apartment, and I guess he had like a copy of a really bad review that Citizen Kane had gotten. And he's like, <laughs> give this to him, show this to him, you know? Um, the joke being, of course, like, we all know this is a masterpiece, but look how look how stupid these reviewers were, you know. But it's also yeah. like, it is dark humor. Um, I also wanted to mention, too, uh, um, John Le Carre, the spy writer that he collaborated with. There's this great little anecdote where they were talking about, you know, the film and and kind of how to visualize it and stuff like this. And uh, Le Carre is like... Listen, I, I explained, you know, I had this grand master plan for how to, uh, where to set the film and, and how to visualize it. I believe he mentioned something like there should be high walls around the town that they're in, kind of representing the, the hidden sides of people and their psychology and stuff like that. And he kept adding more and more details and Kubrick would just remain silent, which would drive Lacare to say even more. Uh, because you know it's so awkward when the other person is, isn't responding and he felt very satisfied that lacare did after he told him all this he said they went for a walk and then kubrick was like i think we're gonna set it in new york and it was kind of just like yeah he kind of had his mind made up about that so there was an aspect of kubrick that's like Uh, You know, he was very collaborative on a lot of things, but there were definite things that he was set on. And you kind of had to work around that.
1: Like he had his idea for the film and then he would do a number of takes in order to like when actors were exhausted, they'd kind of just be reaching at anything. And then that's where experimentation happens. Like that's the in the moment making the scene where something magical can happen. You know, like, like Scatman Crothers yeah. was like, what do you want from me, Stanley? I'll do whatever you want. Just tell me. And he's like, I want magic, Scatman, you know? like Yeah, and he told all, Tom
0: the same, Tom Cruise the same thing. Um, we will actually be getting to that in just a moment. I, I, I wanted to mention I before a, we move one, on.
1: One the dark comedy before you go off. Um, one thing with Stanley's films, and I think it was, in his, we know he had a dark sense of humor from all reports, but I find in his movies, there's lots of scenes that are really funny and they're funny in a kind of a subtly shocking or, or outright shocking way. But then whenever you laugh in his movies, it disarms you and then you pay for it later. Where like in Full Metal Jacket, you're laughing at, uh, you know, Sergeant Gunnery uh, Hartman being so cruel. And then the way that that pays out, you, f- I, f- you I feel a tremendous sense of guilt whenever I watch that. Because I'm like, oh, I was laughing at how cruel this guy is and look at how it turned out. You know, I think he uses comedy so effectively in that satirical sense. But sorry, Tim to interrupt. Please please return to your No, comment.
0: no, it's it's quite all right. I, I just wanted to talk a little bit more about the kind of the early developments of the project when Kubrick actually decided he was gonna make this film. Um You know, in the book, Eyes Wide Open, Raphael kind of details the adaptation process. and I just wanted to mention a few things from that. Um, Mm -hmm. Apparently, Raphael made quite a big deal about him wanting to retain the Jewishness of the characters because, you know, Arthur Schnitzler was Jewish. Kubrick was Jewish. Raphael was Jewish. Apparently Kubrick, uh, wanted to render the characters non-Jewish. Uh, apparently I've read this and I'm not totally sure. I think that this is in the book, but apparently he told Raphael that he imagined Bill as someone more like Harrison Ford. And this may be where the name Harford comes from. I'm not totally sure if that's true. Um, Another interesting change, too, is, you know, updating the setting of the film. Obviously, it's set in New York City in the film. The original was set in Vienna, and it actually takes place during the uh, Viennese carnival. Uh, Kubrick and Raphael obviously set it during Christmas. And you mentioned before the character of Victor Ziegler, who is not in the original novel. And he kind of ties together a lot of the evil forces in the film. It's interesting to know, too, that uh, he was likely named after Adolf Ziegler, whom was hired by Hitler to rid Germany of degenerate art. So he has very kind of a dark legacy there. Uh, I also want to go back to the idea that this was originally uh, supposed to be a sex comedy. For as different a film as, as it ended up being, you know, Kubrick was thinking of casting in the 70s Woody Allen. Uh, Later on, he talked about Steve Martin. He actually met with Martin to discuss the part. I think he loved Woody Allen's early comedies. He loved The Jerk by Steve Martin. And there's actually a notebook uh, in the 80s where Kubrick mentioned actors as varied as Dustin Hoffman, Warren Beatty, Alan Alda, Albert Brooks, Bill Murray, Tom Hanks, Sam Shepard, all these characters, all these actors for the role the lead role of uh, that eventually went to Tom Cruise. Uh, in the 90s, I think he kind of pivoted to, to thinking about working with real-life married couples. Uh, he was considering Alec Baldwin and Kim Basinger, uh, Bruce Willis and Demi Moore, before he finally decided on Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman. And they were probably, I would say, because I remember that time, they were probably the biggest couple in Hollywood at the time. Definitely. Um it's worth mentioning, too, that Jennifer Jason Lee and Harvey Keitel were both originally cast. Uh, Lee was supposed to play Marion, and uh, Keitel was playing uh, Victor Ziegler, but they were replaced midway through production. Uh, there's actually an interview with Harvey Keitel where he basically says like, he didn't like how Kubrick worked. He felt disrespected, uh, and he left. Uh, I think he was also really thrown off by you know, Kubrick's shooting process, uh, with Jennifer Jason Lee, um, you know, she's playing that scene where, uh, you know, Bill goes to the home of that woman whose father has just passed away. And the woman basically throws herself at him, um, they shot that entire sequence and then they reshot it. And Jennifer Jason Lee was not available at that time. So they recast her.
1: She wasn't even told that they had reshot it. And then she went to go see the movie and was like,
0: I'm not in this movie. What happened? I thought I'd that they tried to reschedule her and they couldn't get her.
1: I had heard from maybe I, this is I'm remembering from the Alan Cumming interview, which again is like when people are talking more than actually looking at the details, it, details get changed. And, I, and um, that's a lot of what's happened with this movie is that a lot of what we talk about is people write it down, but it's kind of gossip around the movie, you know, which I don't want to distract from your point right now um, but there's all these kind of legends and tall tales that go around the making of it um, which adds to the whole idea of the conspiracy that goes on with the movie which I think is why the movie is such a focal point of fascination at least for me is that you know the making of it is almost as fascinating as the movie itself because you know with Kubrick he puts so much in the world of his movies that it, it does feel like it's part of the real world if if not even influencing the real world. Um, But I wanted to mention uh, Hartford, you said was Harrison Ford. That's also the name of where he lived in England. So it was another point of which connected to uh, Kubrick personally to the film. And it was interesting that you mentioned the Adolf Ziegler, where he was ridding Germany of degenerate art. Because when you see Ziegler at the beginning, you know, he's welcoming all of them in. Hey, have a drink, come on in. Uh, Make yourself at home or whatever. And then the next time you see him, is with the the prostitute uh, Mandy. Um, yeah. and there's this very striking image when uh, there's a I think it's one of Christiane's pictures in the back of like, it looks like a pregnant woman in a tub or on a bed. And uh, Ziegler's mouth is right where her vagina is. And he's speaking through it. And it always is like a very striking image of it seems very grotesque and suggestive, but I could never really put my finger on what it exactly meant other than like, okay, well, this old evil authority is speaking through like the life force or the life portal that is a vagina or or whatever, what have you. But it might actually be talking about the, that he was getting rid of the world of degenerate art of like censoring what otherwise is a life affirming practice of creating art. Uh, but we yeah. can return to, I thought that was an interesting point. Um, but uh, we, yeah, let's let's talk a little bit more about the sex comedy aspect of it.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, what you just mentioned, I, w- I was just about to say, I mean, it, it could also be played kind of as a dark joke because I think, you know, part of what fascinated Kubrick about this is the idea of doing, a, you know, a sex comedy, of making this comedic, maybe in a similar way to what he'd done with Dr. Strangelove. I know Terry Southern, who collaborated with Kubrick on Dr. Strangelove, He talked about wanting to do it again and wanting to do it again with this novel or novella. And I think maybe, you know, when you mentioned things uh, like Ziegler and and the incident you just uh, referenced, this could be kind of the remnant of some of this original conception of of doing a sex comedy. Um, And I think the movie is still kind of comedic on some level. I mean, there are, there are obvious scenes that are supposed to be funny. I mean, the whole sequence at uh, Rainbow Fashions mm-hmm. is funny. Um, but there are just kind of a, a lot of situations and characters that are almost absurd. You know, it, it does have a very somber streak throughout it, but I think it's, it's curious that... He ultimately kind of decided on Tom Cruise in the the lead role because Cruise is not really known, and especially at that time, for being like a comedic actor. And I, I was always kind of fascinated, like, okay, so you want to make a sex comedy? You're thinking about Steve Martin, Woody Allen. You have all these names of people, who you know. Looking back, kind of on the list of people he considered in the role, like. I would hazard to guess most of them would be more adept at doing comedy than Tom Cruise. And yet he ultimately decided on Tom Cruise. I know like Warner Brothers was kind of pushing him to, to cast another star. I, I think they made reference to like, listen, you, you know, you worked with Jack Nicholson before, how about another star for this movie? But I just mm-hmm. kind of wanted to ask you about the, the sex comedy aspect of the film and, and why you think he ultimately decided on Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman um, in the lead roles. So
1: with Tom and Nicole, I thought it was interesting because he kind of embarrasses Tom a lot in the movie, you know, like, because he's a handsome star doctor. But like you said, everyone hates doctors. Uh, now, Tom Cruise's personal life, returning to what I had said about how Alan oh, Cummings was like, Kubrick might have did a bad, bad thing. we know tom is a scientologist and i'm sure kubrick was aware of this Um, and obviously had his own personal reservations against it being what you know the condition of what's going on with kubrick's daughter or what had happened at the time but to focus on tom and nicole he knew that they were a power couple and he had advertised the movie as like look we're going to watch the it couple having sex and utilize that so when people come to the movie and actually see how this is not at all a titillating movie this movie is very dark. You walk out of there the opposite of Aroused. Um, he used that as part of the advertising, who they were as a star or as stars. And no doubt, the, even the making of the movie, uh, He would, when he was filming Nicole doing the scenes with the naval officer when she was naked, he wouldn't allow Tom on the set in order for Tom to feel the jealousy that uh bill feels and they obviously all agreed to it they trusted kubrick they were in his capable hands i don't think that he did anything without their consent because they had nothing but wonderful things to say about him after but i think that it you know this was when he was the biggest star in the world ostensibly uh you know when eyes white chuck came out was the same year
0: of magnolia tom cruise was nominated for best supporting actor actually on magnolia so 1999 was a big year for him
1: yeah, I mean it was the turn of the century, and he was the biggest movie star, uh, arguably in the world. Now, one other thing I think is interesting, and I think this is what Alan Cummings was kind of mentioning towards, is that it seems that Kubrick is very aware of his choice of casting and what they have previously done, and who that what their persona is in order to utilize that in his film to spark the ideas that he's trying to spark. Like, um, I always think it's funny in the scene when Nicole Kidman's like when they're arguing in the bedroom. Uh, uh, when she's accusing him of maybe cheating or thinking about cheating. And she's like, you're very sure of yourself. And he goes, no, Alice, I'm sure of you. And it just sounds to me like a Tom Cruise line of like, you know, you had me at hello or, you know, uh, <laughs> all those things. And yet th- what happens is it doesn't hit when he says it, it just kind of sounds pompous and silly. And then Alice proceeds to laugh in his face, you know? Um, right. And I also think it's kind of weird because You know, there's a lot of speculation around Tom Cruise being a homosexual, which is ridiculous to even talk about. Yet in the movie, there's lots of weird references to that as well. Like when Tom is in that scene, when Alice is saying that Sandor was trying to have sex with him then and there in the sculpture gallery upstairs, he's like, oh, that's very understandable. He just wanted to F my wife. And he almost seems like turned on by it, you know? And then later Mm. when he's talking to Nick, He's so chummy with Nick. He's got his arm around him. He's laughing. And in the scene when they're in the Sonata Cafe, it's almost like they're flirting. Like they're trying to seduce each other. Like Tom's obviously trying to get an entrance to this party. Nick, you can't tell if he's like um, trying to draw him to the party kind of through a reverse psychology or if he genuinely is just like excited by this thing and wants to talk to his buddy about it. Probably more the latter. But there's this sinisterness of as if they're like flirting. You know? And then later in the movie, when Nick, when Nick gets found or Tom gets found out, you think that he's, he's he's asked to undress that he might be you know raped by these people in order to you know be punished for what he's done. And when Nick gets taken off, he goes through um, the room where it's a bunch of it seems like gay couples dancing like there's a, a man and a naked man dancing with another man, a lesbian couple and he's led off by a man to another room. And then when he goes to try to find Nick, Alan Cummings is there, who is clearly playing, it seems to me, a flamboyant homosexual man who also seems to be flirting with Cruz. like He's kind of looking him up and down, but also seems nervous about what's happened. And it's also interesting because of just their names alone. Like I had mentioned how Alice is kind of related to Lolita in that scene when you see the antenna. And there's a few other references of that. It's Tom Cruise, right? Cruise in the name itself is like if you're out cruising, usually you're going to find men to sleep with. And I think that you know, even Alan Cummings' his name. I mean, come on, you know, like he and uh, picking Ziegler, right? He's the guy that directed uh, Three Days in Condor, which is all about like duplicitous language and mixed messages, which is a huge theme in Kubrick's movie. So he's choosing people from outside of the movie that all help highlight some of the themes of the movie the more you look at it even if it's not a direct relation you can make some sort of subjective connection to it um and i think that's he was once he got tom and nicole on all systems were go to make the movie
0: yeah um it's interesting you mention uh, Sidney Pollock because apparently, um, you know, Tom Cruise was in the firm, which was made released in nineteen ninety three. Uh, apparently, uh, Kubrick was talking to him all the way back then about, you know, potentially working with Cruise. I think uh, Pollock actually recommended Cruise uh, after his experience on that film. Uh, and you bring up a lot of interesting information about, you know, Cruise and, and Kidman. I definitely don't buy into any of the rumors about Cruz i I think you know if you look at the the tabuloid speculation around eyes wide shut, it's kind of a good indication of of the quality I guess of this sorts of conversation. I mean, you know uh, during the production of the film, there were rumors that it was pornographic, it was about necrophilia um. Uh, supposedly Cruz and Kidman played married psychiatrists that had affairs with their patients. Apparently they fraternized with heroin addicts. They needed sex therapists to show them how to shoot realistic love scenes. I mean, there there were just a ton of rumors that proved to be totally false. Um, it certainly wasn't helped by the fact that Kubrick is ultra secretive about, you know, his shooting process, but It kind of, I I put all the kind of speculation uh, over Cruise's sexuality kind of in that box. I will say, though, I think, you know, when you mention what Kubrick did uh, in the the making of this film, I mean, not only, I think, were were, uh, Cruise and Kidman kind of worn down and exhausted by uh, Kubrick's shooting process, it it is the longest continuous shoot in movie history, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, and we'll get back to the making of the film uh, in a little bit. But obviously, like even the the most professional actor would be worn down by that. And you mentioned how he he barred Cruz from being on set when Kidman was doing her scene with the naval officer. Um, apparently, they, they shot a lot of different scenes. I think he asked her to pose and or asked them to pose, Kubrick did, in, in 50 different positions um, uh Kidman said there's there's stuff that they shot that was a lot more extreme uh, than the stuff that ended up in the movie. Uh, but the other thing Kubrick refused to let them do is is actually share notes and talk about what happened. And there's a Vanity Fair article kind of detailing this. So that definitely would have kind of heightened the sense of distrust between them. Um, another thing that Kubrick actually encouraged them to do, and... Uh, you know, this may have also been a bit of method acting on Cruise and Kidman's parts, but they actually um, apparently slept in the bedroom of Bill and Alice occasionally and left some of their personal belongings there too. And I know if you watch interviews with Nicole Kidman uh, in particular, she kind of mentions how the the line between reality and fiction was was a bit blurred making this film. Um you know, a, a couple other things to mention too. I think um, it definitely was done with you know the full consent and approval of Kidman. You know, all of the the, the sex scenes that they did. I, I do recall, though, an anecdote. There, there was a book on the making of Eyes Wide Shut, and they're going through the notes, the editing notes, and I believe that there, there was a scene. Um, during the making of the the sex scene with the the naval officer where you can clearly see her mouth to the camera are you ever going to cut and it, I, I found that really interesting um apparently though you know that was just kind of a, a moment of frustration it's also worth mentioning too I think like more than maybe playing upon the names or rumors or anything like that I think Kubrick really was trying to subvert Cruz's persona. And, mm. you know, Cruz himself said that he did not like playing the character of Bill Hartford. And, you know, the character really is fairly on charismatic and on heroic. Um, you know, the authors of the book that I just mentioned, Robert Cochler and Nathan Abrams, uh, have this great quote, and they argue that Kubrick was aware of Cruz's acting, quote, limits... And had his actor play against them by having him underplay his part, express his discomfort, and confronting him throughout with challenges to his machismo. His wife, the frat boy bullies, the hotel clerk all attack his fundamental masculinity. The prostitute domino, indeed, all of the women offered to him throughout the movie, exposes passivity. End quote. And I mean, when you reflect on the movie. I mean, you know, he not only fails to have sex in the movie, he fails to save anyone. You know, he doesn't save Marion from her miserable life in Michigan. He doesn't save Milich's probably underage daughter. He certainly doesn't save Mandy. He doesn't save Nick. And really, ultimately, that is the kind of hero he can be sometimes, to quote Bill Hartford, which is not a very good one. Kubrick also, like he, uh, apparently, he engaged, uh, Kidman and and Cruz in these super intense private conversations. He got them to really dig deep about their their own fears about their marriage, and I'm sure he probably employed some of that information, you know, at least in directing them. As you mentioned before, both Kidman and Cruz spoke really well of of Kubrick in the process. Um, They were reportedly very friendly and charming on set. They never really complained. Um, But obviously this took its toll. I mean, they, they got divorced in 2001, you know, two years after the release of the film. So obviously this did take its toll. One quick little side story before I know you want to jump in here. But you mentioned um, 1999 was the year that uh, Magnolia was released, and and Cruz has maybe his best performance ever in that. Uh, PTA actually visited the set of Eyes Wide Shut, and apparently Kubrick was not very friendly to him. Uh, PTA mentioned like he he noticed the small crew size that Kubrick had, and he he asked him like, "Hey, do you always work with such a small crew?" And Kubrick replied. Well, how many people do you need? And uh, <laughs> I was really funny. Uh, apparently, though, once he found out that um, Anderson had had written and directed uh, Boogie Nights, he kind of warmed up to him. So I just mm-hmm. found that kind of an interesting little uh, side note there. But um, what do you think about you know kind of the stuff I've said about uh, Cruz and, and Kidman, uh, particularly subverting Cruz's persona? And some of the other information that uh, that I mentioned in terms of Kubrick's process, and you know, kind of blurring the lines between fiction and reality,
1: for the character of Bill, if we can, if we can focus on how that subverted Tom. You know, up until then, Tom was a movie star. You know, he was the hero of the movie. He was a poster boy. Uh, you know, a heartthrob, could do no wrong, and we see Bill as this good looking doctor with a beautiful wife who's rich and has access to pretty much everything at his disposal. And yet he's constantly just led around places. He has very little agency other than he seems to be pursuing sex, but even that he's being seduced into, or he's being pushed to it through his jealousy towards Alice. Um, you mentioned, uh, that he's kind of an anti-hero. Um, and he, right, he didn't save anything. Not only that, he he puts his family at risk. You know, at the end of the movie, not only is their marriage compromised, they're being watched now and monitored by the secret society. And there's the speculation at the end of the movie that his daughter has been kidnapped. You know, they, they talk for well over two minutes at the end of the movie while she's walking around in a toy store. I, I've, I've had things stolen from me on Christmas because that's a time for thieves. And, you know, she's she's let out by two older men or she's kind of uh disappears behind the teddy bears which is another symbol in kubrick's movies uh by these two older men in black coats um it really is you know the family is very much threatened and and that's it's been the, the progression of the movie builds up to that of the themes with kind of children like you mentioned with millage's daughter even nicole kidman right her name is even Kidman, um but with, with subverting Tom, in that scene that you mentioned where he says, uh, well, that's the kind of hero I can be sometime, he had uh, given a handkerchief to one of the models who was he was flirting with, who was trying to seduce him, uh, to clean out her eyes. She was surprised how clean it was. And when you really look at the kind of hero Tom Cruise is, it's to Ziegler. He stops Ziegler from being found out saving this ODing prostitute and cleans up his mess you know Um, Mm. the same way he cleaned out uh, the woman's eye and then later when Nick is uh, writing down Fidelio he puts his hand on the napkin you know which is kind of a material connection to the handkerchief and it's written you know faithfulness and one thing about doctors is that there's the you know, doctor-patient confidentiality agreement. So even though when Ziegler's like, "Oh, I know I don't have to tell you, but you can't tell anyone," completely mirrors what is happening at the house, where he's now forced into promising to never speak about it, and the house is kind of forcing this loyalty to them that he really should have towards his wife. You know, and and that theme of fidelity. I'm sure we'll get into it a little bit later, um, but it's interesting how in his marriage with Nicole, he is not transparent with her, both because of his profession and because of his persona. You know, he's a little secretive. You never really tell what Tom wants, if he wants anything, other than maybe uh, some sort of uh, gratification or a reassurance that he's, uh, you know, a cool, important guy throughout the movie or that he's wanted um, and just ends up getting used the entire movie because of that. Um, you know, and really I think that the hero of the movie is Alice because every time she calls him, he saves him, stops him from having sex with Domino because she calls him. He would have contracted HIV, uh, try, calls him a couple times to come home and he ends up going to the, uh, you know, the orgy and that's where all of his, the family is now at risk. He's now at risk. Their lives are all at risk. And then at the end of the movie, she's, you know, he's like, what are we going to do? You know he's caused this huge problem. And it's an amazing thing because earlier in the movie, you almost don't like Alice. She seems like she's uh, purposely trying to get him jealous and that she's being unreal. but really, she's either putting on a great performance of this is how she's feeling or expressing herself through an ex- performance of like I've had thoughts about other men or she's being honest. She's saying, look, we're we're together. We need to like actually talk about what's going on instead of just this illusion of a a beautiful life we have together. And at the end of the movie, she is the one that resolves. She forgives him and says like, you know, I think we should just be grateful that we've survived our adventures and, and that we're awake now, you know, like she really, I think that Alice's performance is like creating an, or Nicole Kidman's performance is like creating an archetype of a new sort of female hero. And Kubrick's often criticized for his approach towards, uh, you know, feminism or, or women is, is a representation of women in his movies, but it's the same with Shelley Duvall in the shining, you know, like she knocks out her husband. She uh, imprisons him in the uh, food storage locker. She saves her son's life. And yet we're like, Oh, well she's just running around yelling screaming. But it's like, if you actually look at the actions of what these women do, it's remarkably brave and remarkably heroic and like takes a very strong character to do this, even though they're put in, side submissive roles. She, uh, same with uh, Shelley's; like does all the work at the hotel when Jack's supposed to be writing.
0: Also, I just wanted to tie up a point that you brought up earlier about the two men in the toy store. Um, one of the remarkable things about that is that they had been previously seen, I think at Ziegler's party, which makes their appearance at the toy store kind of ominous. Though, uh, if you look at Kubrick's production process, he reused a lot of extras. He had, you know, crew members, uh, act in multiple parts. So that may have also just been a resource issue as well. Um, maybe,
1: however, I, I know what you're talking about, Tim. And I, I was watching that in the movie and the, the old man that gives Tom the envelope when he goes back to the house and it says like, you know, give up all your inquiries, which are completely useless. Consider this your second warning. That is the actor that looks like he's being reused following uh, Helena, um, but it's not. I, I went back, and, or at least when I looked face to face, and I went back. It, it seems like it's a different actor. However, one that I thought was really interesting is the the man in the red cloak who seems to be leading the ritual with the golden mask. We know that that was played by Kubrick's assistant. Um, now, the person that we don't know is the man who looks down at, who's with a woman, who looks down at Tom and then nods at him and then brings another woman over the, to Tom who tries to seduce Tom later in the movie. The only thing you can see to, under, to get a clue at this guy's features are his eyes, his eyes coming through the mask, and they're green eyes. Uh, green obviously kind of has a symbolic meaning throughout the movie of some sort of seductive danger, Uh, but I've gone through the movie and trying to figure out like, who is that? Is it Sandor? Is it, it would seem like it could be Ziggler. That would be the obvious choice. Um, Or it might even be Leon uh, Vitali again. Like, cause it, it, when I look at his eyes, it's like, that kind of looks like him, you know? So he, even though it's we're not supposed to know in the movie, it might be one of those connections that maybe it's a significant one as it usually is with Kubrick. Or we're just left speculating in the mystery of it.
0: Well, in terms of the the men at the toy store, I believe they're actually at Ziegler's party., um, that's what I'd read. Uh, they're they're kind of background characters there. But I wanted to get into the making of the film a little bit. I mean, I mentioned before that this is the actually the longest continuous shoots uh, in movie history. it's It's in the Guinness Book of World Records. It, I think they shot. Uh 18 months with 46 weeks of that on broken. It was just an insane schedule, especially considering that uh Kibben and Cruz were originally asked to shoot for about six months. Um, a lot of this was due to you know Kubrick's process, his shooting process, um, you know, months of rehearsals, rewrites, multiple takes, and also this kind of general approach to acting and directing actors, where he kind of wore them down. You know, one of his kind of go-to approaches is just getting all the artifice out of the actor through multiple takes until they give you something that's really real and raw and and unexpected. Um, Apparently, he did 95 takes of Cruise walking through a door. And I know uh, the actress who played Domino, Vanessa Shaw, uh, said that it took about 69 takes to do this cam shot of her and Cruz walking into her apartment. And if you look at the orgy sequence, I mean, you've already referenced a couple of the kind of mysteries about it. It's a really interesting look into how Kubrick shot the film in general. I mean, uh, he actually hired a choreographer to kind of stage and help deal with the, the complex staging of it and just make it kind of surreal. Uh, he wanted... Almost like a dance, like quality to the movements of the actors in the orgy scene. Uh, he had them do yoga and practice so they could perform in perfect unison. And you know, there is this sense of like him really just trying to iron every you know kind of variable out to the point where it's perfectly refined. Um, you mentioned Leon Vitelli. Uh, he appears as, a, as Red Cloak. He actually wore six-inch platform shoes during that scene, which is really interesting. Um, They ended up rehearsing that orgy scene for about a month, I think, before they actually started shooting. And apparently, the locations were freezing cold because they were shooting this in November, I believe. So they had to kind of hide heaters uh, throughout the set to keep things warm. The actual research that went into that too is interesting. Kubrick is notorious for researching things in extreme detail and uh, they researched kind of secret societies and sexual mores in, in early 20th century Vienna. Uh, they also used apparently illustrations from the, the Kama Sutra and, uh, researched, um, black mass ceremonies Mm -hmm. as well. And, uh, Kubrick was really, really kind of picky about the masks that he used. He used, um, is it called Commedia dell'arte, Masks, um, from an early type of Italian theater? And it's kind of interesting, too, if you look at the, the actual mask that Tom Cruise wore. I saw an interview with the guy who made it, and he said it was actually modeled off of a woman, his girlfriend at the time. So it does have kind of have this andro- androgynous look that plays into some of the subversion of Tom Cruise's machismo that we talked about before. In terms of the conspiracy theorists, I mean, there's a lot of interesting stuff in terms of the locations. Uh, the location of Somerton, which is the fictional mansion where the orgy takes place, was actually a composite of three different places, but one of them meant more towers was a Rothschild property. In terms of the shooting process, I mean, you know, the shooting of that orgy sequence, Kubrick was using Steadicams, and he had a Steadicam operator like try to hit these really precise marks. I know he took a really long time um, trying to get the incense to come out that red cloak is holding, just to you know get it to come out in exactly the right way. He, he had this really precise kind of vision in mind, and you know there's this interesting quote from a Steadicam operator, Peter, I believe his last name is Kavachuti or Kavach. Yeah. Cutie. I'm not sure, but he says, quote, very often Stanley would say to me that I wasn't on my mark because he had these kind of laser marks Mm -hmm. uh, that he had to hit precisely. And he continues, I'd look down and I had my three lasers. So I'd say, Well, I am on the mark, Stanley. And one time Tom Cruise whispered to me, Just move the camera, Pete. End quote. (laughs) So it's kind of like this idea of like, maybe. Kubrick didn't exactly know what he was after and maybe some of his kind of like, uh, you know, complaints over lack of precision and stuff like that were almost a way of buying time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know uh, Garrett Brown, the Steadicam operator on The Shining, kind of said a similar thing of like, you know, during the interview scene with Stuart Ullman, um, apparently he wanted the crosshairs on the camera you know, these little things to kind of help you, you know, figure out where you are to be exactly on Nicholson's nostrils. And if they weren't, you know, basically they had to redo it.
1: Well, just so funny because I like the the camera operator, he was like Stanley was looking into the monitors the whole time. You think focusing on the performances. And then at the end of the take, he was like, uh, you know, I had said the left nostril, you have it on the right nostril. And like just such a small detail, but it it does make you wonder where it's like, was Kubrick being this precise in order to kind of make his staff feel like they really needed to focus and step up in order to please him? Um, You know, almost like uh, as bosses will criticize things that really don't need to be criticized in order for you to feel like you need to work harder. You know, I wouldn't put that past him. Uh, But at the same time, it's like, He's very precise with his details and probably his demands seem very bizarre because he knows once we're finished filming this, that's all I'm going to have to work with. So I want to have 90 takes with very subtle differences in them to find the perfect one for the movie. You know, even though he would often, you know, they said would use the first five takes or something like that for the probably maybe 10% that he would use a later take, it was worth it for exactly that because... It's kind of like you would say, you know, I don't know exactly what I want, but I know what I don't want, and that when you're when you're editing, you're setting it to music, you know, like there's a there's a rhythm to it that, it, it kind of, you come to discover as you're editing, and uh, you know, with with the orgy scene, um, it's very clearly choreographed, like the people are more posing than they are actually engaging in uh, this party, like it seems like it's more of a performance ritual that they're all engaged in, then actually they're partying, you know, and it kind of reminds me of like the beginning when Sandor's like, uh, Alice, would you like to go up and see his sculpture gallery upstairs, you know, and then upstairs Ziegler is in the room. Right. They're all kind of like sculptures. Even when he, he enters the house, there's a sculpture holding like six lights, um, on top of it. And it's, yeah. it's interesting. You mentioned the masks yeah. as well. The comedy dell'arte masks, um, because some of the masks are like a white mask, and then there's a mask on top of the mask. And you seem to not even be able to see people's eyes. The one that I remember caught me the first time I watched it was the mask when Tom first enters the the ritual where they're all circled around Red Cloak. It's the mask with a really long beak. And it just looks so like sickle-like and scary and death-like. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I better watch out for that one. And then later, that's the one that takes Mandy away. Now, what I thought was interesting about this in the last viewing is, you know, since COVID has happened, uh, I'm pretty sure those were the masks that plague doctors used to wear. So it, it's a mask that has to do with like a, you know, airborne virus that's going around and it's the one that takes her away. Obviously, you know, no no one could have predicted COVID at that time, but uh, it an, it's interesting in how it's like so many of these little details that Kubrick obsessed over that m- might have seen mad take on all this resonant multiplicity of meanings
0: yeah well that might be a perfect time to or perfect segue to talk about kind of the the look of the film because Kubrick did a (laughs) lot of interesting stuff with the the look the set designs and stuff like that to give it this really dreamlike look while also kind of you know taking a lot of stuff that he'd done in previous films And kind of combining, it It is kind of a culmination in some ways of, of all of his production processes up until that point. Um, And I think there's kind of like a, almost a sense of old European Christmas opulence uh, throughout the film that makes me think of, you know, Vienna at the turn of the century He was really, really insistent on doing tests and adjustments and things like that. Uh, Not only with the camera crew, but also with the production designers and and set dressers. Uh, The cinematographer on the film was Larry Smith, who had been a gaffer on Barry Lyndon and The Shining. And the lighting and sets were arranged prior to shooting. Kubrick would do these uh, exposure tests uh, Mm -hmm. with stand-ins. And apparently he would uh, test every F-stop to see which one looked the best, which to me sounds, you know, absolutely exhausting. But I guess he also used a video camera a lot, like when they were doing the the orgy rehearsals, he would use video cameras to get footage of that and then kind of judge uh, the footage from there. It's interesting because the constant testing and stuff like that um, were really used to make, you know, these ideal visuals and these, these ideal shot selections. Uh, also like on Barry Lyndon, Kubrick was really pushing to shoot with as much available light source as possible, you know, to use practical lighting because he felt like this gave him, you know, a lot more freedom to move the camera wherever he wanted. If he didn't have to have these huge lights, uh, you know, off to one side of the camera, um, if he was using just the Christmas lights or the lamps or whatever, he could really move the camera wherever he wanted. Um, it's also kind of interesting in terms of Barry Lyndon. Apparently, he considered reusing the the famous you know f zero point seven NASA lenses from Barry Lyndon, um, but ultimately decided against it. And his big kind of reason why is because you know in the nineteen nineties they had faster film stocks. So it was easier to shoot in lower light conditions. Uh, He also did this thing where he asked the lab to push the film stock two stops higher. And this allowed him to shoot with less light. But it also kind of created this unique look that the film has. Mm. Uh, It it kind of exaggerated the highlights. uh, So it gave the, the Christmas lights this interesting sort of look. It, it made it really grainy. And I've, I've heard people who had seen the movie in theaters in, you know, 35 millimeter film uh, that, you know, the, the prints we see today or the digital uh, scans of the film that we see today on like Netflix really don't capture the graininess of those original prints, which, you know, if you know anything about Kubrick, were very closely supervised. So it has a really interesting look. Apparently, he also used um, low contrast filters in a smoke machine to give it a, a bit of a glow. Uh, the colors, too, especially the oversaturated blues that simulate moonlight are really, really interesting as well. And we see a lot of like steady cam work and zooms, which, you know, Kubrick had been using the zoom, uh, zoom lenses for quite a long time. You see it in Barry Lyndon a lot. Uh, Steadicam work, I mean, you see it most prominently in The Shining. It's just, you know, a a kind of revolutionary use of that. I think he also kind of, uh, you know, did a lot of uh, rehearsals to, to figure out the blocking and do a bit of rewriting. You know, Kubrick didn't use storyboards. So he really, you know, part of his production process, I think, was buying himself a lot of time. Uh, so that he could figure out how things were done. It, it's weird for someone who's so like overprepared and methodical in how he does things that really, you know, the most important part in some ways, the visuals, are kind of left up to, you know, be figured out in the moment. he, he was kind of intuitive that way. He would kind of limit his range of possibilities by doing all these tests and doing all these rehearsals and doing rewrites and stuff like that. But he was also very instinctual. In terms of you know where he thought the camera should go and things like that, so I, I just kind of wanted to ask you. Uh, I'll talk a little bit more about the sets in a moment because there's a lot of interesting details there. But what did you think of kind of the look of the film, the visuals of the film, and and how it kind of harkened back to some of his previous films?
1: Uh, well, the look of the film. I mean, like you've mentioned a lot about the overexposed film that he did, and the it is remarkably a very dark film. And yet the lights are so vibrant, you know, and I, I, it's interesting that he, how he filmed it in a lower light setting and then overexposed it, I'm pretty sure after the fact, uh, you will have to correct me on the exact detail of that. It does make me wonder about how Kubrick would use real life details as like a, a furthering point of the themes of the film, you know, just overexposed in itself as a technique that he was using for the film itself the actual film and then that's what the film is also doing is exposing something maybe more than it could have or or maybe less than it could have um and in order to get like ideal visuals you know like the movie kind of presents bizarre ideals in itself um of fidelity and, and loyalty. Uh, now that's, again, like thematic symbolism that goes behind it. Uh, the granular quality you mentioned is is very apparent in the flashback scenes or the jealous imaginings that Tom Cruise mm-hmm. is having about Alice with the naval officer. Um, and that's, again, most of that is filmed in like a green and it's very grainy and it's i always wonder like why did he put it in the green and then the more i watched the movie the color green seems to take on this s- symbolism you know and it's it's interesting to note that santa claus used to be presented as wearing a green cloak and the reason why there's christmas trees in in uh society or in at christmas time is from the norse tradition of they would take an evergreen tree and bring it into the winter to show like the 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 strength of the life force, you know, that can exist through the death of winter. Um, and that in medieval times, the devil was often presented as green. Green was seen as like a color for evil, you know, and now we have a red Santa, we have a red devil, green and red are the Christmas colors. Green has still been retained, obviously, with the evergreen. But, you know, green for us kind of seems to symbolize like a jealousy. That's, I think, why, you know, green with envy why those scenes are also in green, but in the movie as well, you know, green is like a green light go green is money. Uh, there's, there's this kind of like seductive danger that comes along with this, this green, even as I mentioned, the eyes of the person behind the mask are are green and there's a, uh, every color in his movie seems to take on these kind of significances. You mentioned the blue light coming in through the windows, right? I, I always wonder, is that a reference to the blue room? You know, uh, I love when Kubrick makes it so that everything looks blue because in, in real the real world, you know, when you're at like dusk or you're waking up at dawn and the entire world takes on this blue hue. It's very otherworldly in this transitional time, you know, between day and night. And in the sequences, the primary one is when Alice is telling Tom his dream uh, is when everything is very blue. You know, they're, they're literally inside of a blue room. And it seems to me that that blue often symbolizes like a a sadness, a loneliness, like a seriousness that enters into the scene. You know, even when Alice is backing up, uh, kind of stumbling, when she's like, do you realize what you're saying is that you're only not sleeping with these girls out of consideration for me in their bedroom when they're having the argument? She backs up towards a blue light. And when she's confessing her infidelity, there's this blue light coming in behind her, or her feelings of infidelity, I should say. Uh, I, I could go on and on for the color symbolism. One is that red and purple often seem to go together on Christmas trees, and they seem to represent this weird power, dangerous power. Even the the red cloak, he's beside him are two purple henchmen. And then you see mm. the even the guy opening the door at the Sonata Cafe is wearing purple, you know? And, and Domino's wearing purple. You know, and who's later HIV positive? Of these kind of regal colors that are latent with danger, and then there's the Christmas lights in themselves, and going to the end of the rainbow. Um, I can go on and on for these examples uh, throughout the movie. Even when I see black, right? Like uh, when he's walking to Rainbow Fashion, it's very strange that it doesn't say Rainbow Fashion Rainbows. It's a black bag or a white bag that has a big black square on it, and then gold in it, and says Rainbow in gold. And whenever I see Mm. pitch pitch black in Kubrick movies, it always reminds me of the monolith. Um, Mm. And even the the technology in the movie, you know, when the camera looks at them when he's at, or the camera at the gate moves towards him. uh, There's little instances that always seem to call back to his previous movies Uh, through that, the picture itself through the actual look of the film. And then through that, you know, the reference to him, the self-referential Kubrick of these are ideas I've already talked about, seems to always be returning to them.
0: Just a uh, one little interesting factoid. Apparently Kubrick had originally thought of filming this in black and white, or at least he considered it at one point, I believe in the 70s or, or maybe even 80s. But I did want to segue to talking a little bit about uh, the sets. Because I think, you know, for as as much kind of uh, deliberation went into the the visuals of the film in terms of the camera work, the lighting, the colors, uh, there's a lot of interesting details in terms of the sets. Because, of course, famously Kubrick, you know, grew up in New York City and he kind of recreates it on a soundstage for Eyes Wide Shut. Apparently in the Stanley Kubrick archives, there are 302 boxes of reference photos of New York and London specifically for this film. Mm -hmm. Now, Kubrick, who refused to fly, actually had a friend of his daughter's conduct uh, research. I think her name is Lisa Leon, Uh, down to the width of the streets and even the exact distance between newspaper vending machines in New York City in the 90s. Um, apparently four blocks of facades recreating New York city were built in Pinewood studios and they even, you know, shipped in props from the city itself. Apparently even Domino's apartment was a recreation of an actual New York city apartment. And they basically just stripped the entire contents of the the apartment they were trying to recreate, like even down to the plumbing and shipped it to England and basically just reassembled it there
1: fascinating
0: yeah I mean it's just it's incredible. they use some uh, second unit footage of New York City too for establishing shots and for some rear projection plates I believe. but they also used some locations in London too, including uh, interestingly enough, a transgender bar for the location of the Sonata nightclub. Hmm. So there's a lot of interesting sort of details about the sets themselves. And I think much like he'd done in The Shining, Kubrick in the art department kind of worked to fill in the background with subliminal details, mm-hmm. uh, Some sometimes details that foreshadowed certain events. Like You can see an Eros sign, for example, in one of the, the shops. There's also some callbacks to his other films. You can see the street number 237, for example, which mm-hmm. is an obvious reference to The Shining. And I think, you know, it's really in his sets, probably more than any other particular aspect of his filmmaking, that Kubrick is able to really kind of conjure up this sense of uncanniness. You know, if you look at the newspaper props that they use Mm -hmm. when, when Tom Cruise is being kind of followed they use a, a mix of real and fake news articles that are all kind of related to murder and death and acts of violence. But if you look really closely, and some people have done this, there were actually like intentional mistakes in the articles, mm-hmm. which are, you know, kind of adds to the dreamlike quality of the film. Apparently, and I, I may be basing this solely on a episode of Batman, the animated series, but <laughs> apparently if you... uh if you read a book in a dream or at least for some people it kind of comes out all you know funny and and you know weird it it Mm -hmm. doesn't really read in a linear fashion and that may be an allusion to that
1: you might be onto something there it's the same with like if you play an instrument in a dream like sometimes i'm playing guitar in a dream and i'm playing chords and it sounds great but i'm like these chords don't make any sense like they're not fitting together in the way i recognize it and it's very, uh, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, discombobulating or whatever. Same with if you're in a dream and you flip on a light switch on or off. Uh, that's one way of telling you're in a dream. If you put the light switch off and the lights stay on, it kind of clues you in that you're in a dream. That's one of the ways they signal to, people signal to themselves to lucid dream. Uh, but sorry, go on. I just I just thought that was really interesting.
0: Well, no, th- those are, I mean, I think people feel intuitively when they're watching the film, things that they felt when they were in a dreamlike state or, or when they were actually dreaming. You know, there's just a sense that things, their normal sense of reality isn't quite there. Apparently the, the sets of New York City are actually like kind of spatially impossible um, if you actually map it all out. But I think, um, you know, one thing that they realized is they didn't, the sets they made actually weren't big enough. So they had to constantly like reconstruct them which may explain why they don't really add up if you really map it map it out. Mm, kind of like uh, in the shining, where if yeah, I yeah, that's a continuity error. And then Kubrick
1: found a way to make it have sense. And it, you know, just to return to your point of like the details that Kubrick would go into were seemingly impossibly complex. Uh, I think was just his way of being, of covering all of his bases so that when it came to the actual day of filming, he had a plethora of decisions to fall back on because as you know, as a filmmaker, Tim, there's a lot of just unexpected problems that come up on the day of filming and you only have so much time and you have to make it work. And I think part of his intuitiveness as a filmmaker is that he was just a masterful problem solver. So even when he was editing and had a problem, he would he would find solutions of how to make it work. We assume that, and this is kind of the two, the paradox of Kubrick, I would say, is the great master intended every detail that's in his film. That's why the details are so rich. That's why we return to it and can find constant reference points and interconnectivity in the films. And yet it's, you know, as a filmmaker, sometimes things happen unexpectedly, you know, uh, actors experimenting, you know, or you, or you notice a little detail in the background. I think Kubrick was just very quick to pick up on this because he'd been thinking about it for so much And at so many other details as reference points, he could move in many different directions at once, move really quickly, picking up on what was actually happening in in the moment of filming. I think that regardless of if he intended that detail or if it's something that showed up, it still can be uh, meaningful, you know, in the interpretation. At the end of the day, Kubrick just wanted to make really, really interesting pictures, you know, and and every scene is a testament to that.
0: Yeah, well, and, and also I think the two actresses who played Mandy, you know, because they're uh, the original actress who, who was in the bathroom scene who had overdosed is not the same actress you see in the orgy scene, and uh, and you actually in the orgy scene see both of them in different shots, and and uh, part of that too just comes right down to his editing process and and realizing what he can get away with and and maybe intentionally choosing some of these kind of continuity errors or quote-unquote mistakes maybe you know and and the editing process itself is pretty interesting too to get into because you know i think like all of kubrick's films he was extremely intense uh when he was editing it Uh, apparently like you know the first editor he hired was working like 12 hour days he's like listen i need an assistant they hire an assistant the assistant is working 12 hour days the assistant says i need an assistant too they hire a new assistant for that assistant they're also working 12-hour days and it's just like incredibly intense but you know they they finished the film uh, Kubrick had a, I think a deadline of March 1999 so he mm-hmm. screened it for them supposedly his final cut for Warner Brother executives and Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman they had it shipped to New York I believe so they could watch it they were thrilled with it and Kubrick was extremely happy. He supposedly told uh, Jan Harlan that he considered it his best work, and then he died. And, um, you know, this has led to a lot of speculation. I mean, there's already enough speculation in Kubrick's films over what was intentional, what's not intentional. I mean, the famous helicopter shadow at the beginning of The Shining is a, is a great example, but it it's a whole nother matter when he dies before the film is actually done. And yeah. we've got to unpack this, I think a little bit, because if you, if you dig into the details about what was actually finished, I mean, they say the movie was picture locked prior to his death, but there were a lot of things that were not finished. I mean, the dubbing of the film was not finished. The, the scoring had yet to be finished. He had, um, He had found this uh, composer named uh, Jocelyn Pook, who I think the choreographer of the orgy scene was playing some of her music, and Kubrick became interested in it. And uh, they eventually worked together to create this piece called Masked Ball, which uh, features a recording of Romanian priests singing liturgy played backwards. It's very haunting. Uh, Apparently for her, it was kind of like a critical comment on the homophobia of the Catholic Church which, uh, mm-hmm. you know, just a little side note, uh, he'd also chosen some of the pre-existing music. So, for example, Leggetti, uh, Shostakovich, uh, the pieces that the movie is most associated with, the jazz waltz and uh, that, you know, really haunting piano score by Leggetti, uh were originally chosen by Kubrick. Uh, apparently, he originally wanted his daughter Vivian to compose original tracks, too, but that didn't really work out. In any case, he had a lot of the music chosen, but the scoring was not totally complete. And that may mean, you know, they hadn't figured out exactly where the music goes. They hadn't exactly nailed down what music they were going to use. It's a little bit open to interpretation. But uh, probably another thing that's interesting to note is the dubbing. The dubbing was not finished. And they actually considered using voiceover narration. And Kubrick actually died before he. You know, had decided against it. So it's basically left up to the family, like Jan Harlan, Christian Kubrick, but especially Leon Vitelli, to decide what to do. And they ultimately decided against using this voiceover narration. But originally you can take a look at it. It's not very good. It's a lot of purple prose. Um, I think it would have been really, really bad because it basically just tells you what you can see in Tom Cruise's face. Yeah. But you know, they did do they did have to do some dubbing in terms of um, some of the actresses, and most interestingly enough, uh, the woman at the mass ball, the mysterious woman who kind of saves Tom Cruise, is not the original actress. Her name was Abigail Good, I believe was her name. Uh, she was actually an English actress who couldn't really do a convincing enough American accent, so they hired Kate Blanchett to to dub her. Oh, really? uh, this was done after kubrick's death. Wow. And probably the biggest change I mean there there's two really big changes I think that that point to this maybe not being as finished as we're led to believe. The opening shot of Nicole Kidman like taking off her dress uh that was added in after kubrick's death. That was decided on by that, you know, team of people, the the editors and, and Kubrick's family, they basically decided on that shot. And probably the biggest one, and the one that everyone knows about, is the kind of digital characters that were added to the movie for about 65 seconds to avoid an NC-17 rating. Uh, this is in the orgy sequence. Now, the thing about this, Kubrick obviously didn't sign off on this. Apparently, he wanted an R rating, so he presumably would have agreed to it. And now the version of the movie we see, the removed. We can see the original kind of uh, uncensored version of the film. But nonetheless, it premiered. It, it went to Venice uh, in September of 1999. It opened to somewhat mixed reviews. I think it went on to earn $162 million globally, which is Kubrick's highest grossing film ever, I believe. And nonetheless, the speculation, the question over, you know, whether it was finished uh, remains open because, I mean, Kubrick did re-edit 2001 and The Shining after their theatrical release. So I guess I wanted to ask you, with all this information on the table, do you think that Kubrick, well, first of all, do you think it was his final cut and do you think he would have re-edited it later if he could?
1: Um, In short... Uh, though it might seem contradictory, yes, to both of those. Because he had brought in a final cut to Warner. But we also know that Kubrick, you know, infamously uh, would, even when movies had been released in theaters, he would re-edit them after he'd seen them on the big screen and after some time had gone by. Like with The Shining, he he cut out some sequences to make it a little bit more claustrophobic. Um, so I think he definitely would have continued recutting, And as you said, he hadn't finished the dubbing you know, or the soundtrack and that I didn't know Nicole Kidman's uh, or the, the first thing of Nicole Kidman taking off her dress was added. But to me, that seemed like a very good detail because uh, it, yeah. it mimics what happens in the orgy scene when they all drop their dress. And I don't think it's unusual as well that if Stanley passed his family and the production company took over making some decisions with it, because a lot of it is just problem solving what Stanley would have done anyway, what he would have done differently after. I remember Christopher Nolan had an interview where he said, I think Stanley, I would have liked to see the ending that Stanley would have wanted, you know? And that always struck me as like, well, that of the movie is like yeah. one of the, the most beautiful parts in any movie, you know, it's a, a real gem. And it's like so for Christopher Nolan to say like, Oh, I wonder what he would have done differently, especially because the last sequence in the movie is in a toy store. And how Kubrick had changed clockwork orange is that it, cut out the, the American ending of A Clockwork Orange, which is, you know, Alex DeLarge walking through a toy store and thinking about family and realizing, i got to put my toys away and become a proper adult. Kubrick removed that, or he didn't know about it because he had a, the British version. You know, it's up to speculation. But then at the end of Eyes Wide Shut, that it's in the toy store, it kind of reclaims that ending that had been taken out or lost From A Clockwork Orange, that reconciling ending, you know, and uh, even the reconciliation of it at the end does leave you questioning, is this actually a proper resolution? But I I don't think uh, it would have been different. If Stanley had stayed aligned, there's no question that we would have had a different film. However, you know, Virgil's Aeneid apparently he hadn't finished it entirely and he ordered it to be burned before he died. And luckily his, his friends didn't listen to him and Gave it to Augustus Caesar, you know, and it's an unfinished, an unfinished masterpiece that is still a masterpiece standing high above everyone else. So yeah, I I probably would have changed it. Does it change my opinion of the film? Speculatively, uh, hypothetically it does. I still, all of the details that are in there that they were working with, Stanley had filmed, you know, and I'm sure all the decisions they were making we're meticulously going through Stanley's notes. I just feel for them because in the same way you see when Tom and Nicole are interviewed after the movie about working with Stanley, they take it really seriously and it, they're still grieving. So I can only imagine how difficult it was for his family to put together this movie that Stanley had poured the ending of his life into while they're still grieving for him, you know? And perhaps yeah. that did influence where the movie's made of the focus on death more so than sex.
0: Yeah, well, I think it's a good point to jump into analyzing the film. I mean, we started off this conversation by talking about how difficult this film was to interpret, how complex and mysterious it seemed on first viewing, and we've kind of dangled a bunch of threads about, you know, what this movie's actually about and and just the many kind of mysterious details, possible meanings, uh, and symbols, and things like that. And that is it for the free episode, ladies and gentlemen. You can head on over to patreon.com slash nowitsdark to hear the full episode, another hour and a half plus of analysis. Mike and I get into the history of Christmas and how it relates to the film. And what I think is the most interesting kind of aspect of our discussion, the theme of family life and domesticity. In Eyes Wide Shut and how it represents kind of an evolution in Kubrick's career. If you look back at his films in the past, he really has kind of been talking about family life and the domestic space in his entire career. And Eyes Wide Shut is really an interesting evolution in his treatment of that theme. And we get into things like class and dreams and how it relates to Kubrick's own kind of concerns at the time of, of Eyes Wide Shut and and all sorts of other things, too. You won't want to miss it. I think it's a really interesting and original analysis that we gave. And I also want to thank you for your support uh, so far. This will be our final episode of 2022. So thank you very much for listening, and I hope you have a safe and happy New Year's.